0: This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Nexus Pro. Nexus Pro is an annual or monthly subscription where members get exclusive writing, podcasts, and invites to members-only Zoom gatherings. You can find info on how to join and support the podcast at nexislabs.online. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of the Nexus Podcast. Episode 42 is a conversation with Aaron Lapsley, founder of System 2 Consulting. We talked about Aaron's awesome resume in smart buildings, and I picked his brain on what he's learned from his years at Cushman Wakefield, Switch Automation, and more. Then we took a bit of a deep dive into smart building strategy, and Aaron gave me a buzzword and hype-free update on what's going on in the world of IAQ and reset in the COVID era. Without further ado, please enjoy Nexus Podcast episode 42. Hey, Aaron, welcome to the Nexus Podcast. Can you introduce yourself for us?
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks, James. Happy to be here. Uh, my name is Aaron Lapsley. I'm a, an engineer, management consultant, and a, a general technologist in real estate.
0: And uh, I remember like when I first started the podcast, I talked to Deb Noller, who's a friend of both of ours. She told me to have you on, and it took me almost a year to actually have you here. So that, that's great. Uh, can you kind of give us a, a background on your your career? And I, I want to yeah. dig into a lot of different areas of your career, but it, I, I think there are very few that have the sort of pedigree you have in our industry. So maybe take us through like a resume of all the cool stuff you've done.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'll try to keep it brief. Um, yeah. And yeah, dev you know, had a huge impact on my career and the time I spent with, uh, with switch automation and, and even, and I, I've had, you know, a lot of folks like that that have really made a big impact on me, yeah. so I, I do appreciate her. So I, I have this strange sort of breadth of experience in, in real estate services. I, I've always worked around buildings or, or energy. So I started my career, um, uh, a mechanical engineering student, uh, University of Oklahoma. I started out in the energy industry, upstream oil and gas. Um, and so I worked for a year, uh, worked for a drill bit company, worked uh, some in the field uh, with a, a friend of mine's family company, putting together surface equipment, uh, learning mostly. And then I did the first year of a master's degree in petroleum engineering Then I, I decided I didn't want to work in the, in the oil and gas industry anymore. It was a rough time for the oil business in the, in the mid-2000s. So I, my uh, girlfriend at the time, now my wife, had moved up to New York. I wanted a big change of pace. And so I moved up to New York without a job. And I wanted to get into engineering consulting you know, HVAC engineering, um, which I uh, <laughs> saved that story for another day over a beer, but I did over a period of time, short period of time, get into that industry and had a, a very successful career with low associates in New York. So I, I designed HVAC, did a lot of analysis. I got uh, LEED accredited before I got my professional engineering license in, in 2007 which was early days for Lead. It, it was LEED 2.1, I believe is what we took the test on. I actually had to pull my credential out the other day and I was, was remembering back. Um, and so we were kind of starting the early stages of the like sustainable design studio. And we're doing a lot of kind of energy project work too, energy modeling, retrofits and upgrades, you know, constant work like that going on in New York. And it, it got me very interested in the energy side of, of buildings. Um, and started to tie those two things together. I, I ended up going to do an MBA. I went to Harvard Business School. was very fortunate to get in there. And that's just you know, an absurdly transformational experience yeah. that you don't you know, get very often, right. um, and really, really accelerated my career. I ended up doing kind of a, a lot of people go into management consulting after an MBA, a, a two-year continuation of business school. So I worked for Deloitte Consulting. Uh, for another year and a half or so. And about half the time I worked in corporate real estate work. They have a a good corporate real estate practice. And I I got more exposure to the technology side. I should also say that what got me into building tech in general is at HBS, we did a field study where you can substitute a project for a class. And it was with uh, McKinstry up in Seattle that the design, build, operate, maintain contractor really Fantastic company, mm-hmm. and they um, had purchased the, uh, some of the engineering energy software assets from Itron, and were looking to explore what to do to build a business around active energy management. And there's, you know, a lot of companies that do that kind of work now, but it was early days in 2010, mm-hmm. and we um, helped them with a strategy on that. And it really got me thinking about that time about why we weren't doing centralized operations for real estate more. Hmm. So then just fast forwarding quickly, ended up going to a boutique consultant, doing smart building programs, integrating BMX data, setting up centralized operations centers, um, ended up going and working for Switch Automation with the first U.S. employee as they came over from Sydney and built the uh, headquarters in San Francisco and, you know, had an amazing time there, startup experience, you know, helped them with products, helped them build the services team that's now flourishing and doing amazing things. Um, and then ended up going over to work for Daryl Smith, who had just brought in Cushman Wakefield as his FM provider at Google after that. Um, and that was kind of another really amazing experience on building technology. So did a variety of things, ran energy management, uh, ran uh, building technology programs, and ultimately had this experience to be able to, to go in and do that at a corporate level for, for Cushman, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about more.
0: Absolutely. Oh, we had another mutual friend, Dennis Krieger, who introduced us uh, that uh, you guys are big fans of each other, which is, which is fun. Yeah. So shout out to Dennis for making this conversation happen. Uh, can you tell us about System 2? So you left Cushman recently and, and started your own thing, System 2. So tell us, tell us what's all up
2: with that.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, started System 2 consulting um, as a vehicle to do uh, engineering consulting work actually a number of years ago, and then hadn't done very much with it, really got it fired up in earnest in November after leaving Cushman. And, you know, look, I just saw a major opportunity to to move into providing services directly to clients. Um, And so starting to pursue that now as a firm, you know, it's a consulting and engineering firm specializing in technology for the built environment, building systems, you know, working with designers, developers, owners, operators of real estate to improve building occupant experience, health and safety, and and building performance using data, digital solutions, focusing on technology strategy and programs through implementation uh, and program deployment, uh, and then also related engineering services. Things like applying OT and IoT solutions, upgrades, doing building technology assessments, and then you know, related to high-performance buildings, doing HVAC optimization, retrofits, upgrades. And I think there's just, I've seen from clients, I've talked to them about it a number of times, that there's a beneficial strategy for me to be able to provide services that are end-to-end, because a lot of times there's not a very particularly well-managed handoff between those phases of the life cycle of a, a, a building technology program. So as you kind of pointed out, I've got a, a, a bit of a strangely broad background that enables me to go from strategy through to sort of building level engineering. But, you know, I'm starting to already see success in applying that model. Yeah, the
0: handoffs in our industry are, and that's one of the things I, I teach in the course. It's like there's so many different places for for the handoffs to go wrong. That's definitely one of them. Yeah, strategy to, I mean, all the way to design, to operations. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. That's such an amazing background. Uh, So let's talk about, um, I mean, I'm excited at all the things we could potentially unpack here. The question that I normally ask guests is why is technology in buildings so far behind, say the technology in our pockets. And I want to add a second piece of that for you, which is your, your LinkedIn headline, which is (laughs) maybe you can just share what your, your LinkedIn headline is as part of your, your answer.
1: I change it all the time. So I don't know which one you're referring to. I try to keep it fresh, just as a rule. But I mean, I think the most recent one, maybe the provocative one that you're referencing was challenging CRE to be better. And then I've got this hashtag I use, the buildings are not bonds. That's
0: the one, that's the one,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the challenging CRE to be better part, I think is it may be controversial to some people, but people in our neck of the woods certainly understand that that's something that, that needs to be done. Buildings are not bonds. It really came from really my time in real estate in general, but it's been particularly in the last like eight years or so from 2013 on, I really worked in the operational side of real estate. So not so much, I, I, I have done lots of design and construction side stuff, but really the kind of operating buildings, how do we get data out of them? What do we do with it? How do we change operating processes? And you know, in operating buildings, margins are, are thin. I mean, a, a, a building is a fixed income asset. It is financed or expected to perform in a way that is a fixed income asset, like a bond. Yeah. Meaning there's a maximum that you're going to get out of a building on rent in any given year. And there's a lot of downside and not a huge amount of upside, but it's fairly predictable income. You know, stable over time. I mean, they're obviously disrupted right now in the office and retail sectors, but in general, these assets perform with a somewhat of a risk-return profile of a, a fixed-income asset versus like an equity. But buildings are not bonds, and oftentimes they are treated like bonds. They're securitized like bonds from a finance perspective. The, the key difference that I think a huge amount of the real estate industry just does not appreciate is that a building is a product that people have to use. Yeah. So it is a it is a fixed income asset, but it is a product that people need to be in, and you know, for you to make money as an owner, <laughs> and that is really, really evident right now. Um, <laughs> yeah. Every office tenant right now is reducing its portfolio or planning to. I mean, make no mistake about it; they're all reducing in some capacity. Very few are going up versus what their previous trajectory may have been. Even the big tech companies, right? Um, as people move towards, you know, hybrid. So Scott Galloway, you know, has been talking for a while about dispersion and how you know, commercial real estate, third largest asset class in the world is gonna have this massive value transfer to residential real estate, which we've already seen in prices. I just experienced that buying a house myself. And I think that's real. Now I think maybe he's overplaying it a little bit. There will still be the need for for assets, but the transition, you know, James, like for me is, shouldn't be just about like readjusting valuations of buildings and, and people taking a haircut on their bond. It's about making the product something that people want to use. And there's a lot of things that we can unpack about that at, at a high level. I, I, I was using that hashtag before COVID because it's just a real problem. Like too many people that have way too much power in real estate have no idea what goes on in the actual buildings or how they work or what they do for the people that go into it.
0: Absolutely. So what are some of the ways that you would
1: then educate them on that? Well, I mean, it's kind of starting to happen. You know, tenant experience has become or workplace experience for corporate real estate groups is it's not an old concept, but it's not quite new either. And it's developed quite a bit, particularly in the last few years. So, I mean, I, I think it's kind of starting to happen in some sense. Where I see a big lack of understanding though are around things that aren't just highlight like bullet points on a marketing sheet for a building.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: like does it have a gym? Does it have a cafe? Right. Does it have an outdoor terrace? That stuff is great and important. It's part of been an experience. There are other things that matter about how buildings work too. Things on the cost side that I know you and I've worked on for you know, at least in my case, like a larger chunk of my career than maybe even I should have, like very specific topics, topics around energy and maintenance and, you know, sort of building optimization. That stuff matters because of, particularly because of ESG investing on the CRE side, you know I mean? Like it's being pushed to the fore. But -hmm. there's a lot of things about building operations, just about what the building does and how it works that people don't think about necessarily at the forefront. You know, how people get in and out of the building so access control and visitor management processes. Like if you look at the data that people like PopMoto or Leasement or these companies that do this type of like worker survey for the office sector, it's stuff that makes people's lives easier that is always at the top of those surveys. And there's usually have the biggest gaps
2: too. Hmm.
1: Um, so it, you know, yeah, they, they're happy to have an outdoor terrace too, but like, I see a lot of 40 or $50 million lobby projects in office buildings where it's like, okay, but if you're not putting in like a modern mobile badging, seamless to access control system, like yeah. you're not really doing what you, you need you know, to, to really improve the experience.
0: The way I describe that piece is like, don't waste my time. Like I have a very efficient life that I've designed inside my home. And when (laughs) I go to the office, like the building shouldn't waste my time. Right. And that's how I've always phrased it is like, there's so much friction in an average building from this point to that point to this point, you know? So.
1: Yeah. Can we touch on your question about why technology is behind in building? Yeah. So
0: that was like, buildings are not bonds. That's one reason. What's your broader answer? Yeah.
1: Well, I... I was thinking about this, you know, because I, I knew you would ask that question. And I've done a lot with like sort of corporate technology in general, um, particularly when I think back to what I was doing with Deloitte and some of what we were doing with technology programs when I was at Cushman. When you're working for a corporate real estate client in general, even when you're working in the workplace side, you end up talking about the rest of their tech infrastructure in some way, shape or form. And it gives me this perspective that I'm not sure that like us having an iPhone in our pocket is a fair comparison for buildings. Yeah. I, I think that the question of whether or not like technology is behind in buildings is like relative to what. And mm-hmm. if you view it relative to the average enterprise technology stack, even for companies, you know, who I won't name, but ought to be expected to be held to a higher standard, it can be very unsophisticated. Okay. Um, now, that's not to say that buildings aren't behind in some areas. Cybersecurity is an area where I think a lot of buildings are definitely behind. But that's mm-hmm. because, in a way, buildings were one of the first things that actually had connected systems to the Internet. Mm-hmm. So I've said this before, like the, the concept of IoT, buildings had essentially what we call IoT, like Long time ago, thirty years yeah. ago, right? Yeah, I mean, and it's become more common to have it connected for remote monitoring by your BAS vendor or an energy management company or your building engineers to, to look it up at home. That's really becoming more common and more new. But there were network systems of connected devices in buildings before just about everything, other than say manufacturing and, and industrial hmm. plants. Yeah, so like That's fair. Buildings, in a way, adopted technology early. And then now it's hard to upgrade. It's expensive to upgrade Hmm. over time. And that's the same with most big companies. You know, one of the issues is that big is hard to maintain. When you're big, it's hard to maintain an update thing. And a lot of buildings are just sort of big entities. The building automation system is expensive to replace. Totally. You know, um, it's hard to shut a whole building off to put in a meter, you know? So, look, the buildings have challenges, but I want to give you know credit where it's due on that.
2: Mm-hmm. Now,
1: the answer to why they are behind to the extent they are behind is manifold. Uh, and we came up with a good framework for it, Doug and I, when, when we were at Cushman, we came up with six things that we saw that, that the way we put it was, you know, what was preventing innovation in the built environment? hmm um, okay. And it's it six things, and I'll list them. It, it's cost of entry or, or lack of clarity thereof, lack of skilled labor, confusing vendor market, inadequate infrastructure, which is probably the place where buildings tend to fall behind is that one, that fourth one, uh, time to value, and ROI ambiguity. Hmm. So those were right. the kind of categories we came up with. And I, I think that any program you're going to put in place, whether at a kind of company level or big program level, is going to need to address each of those in some way.
0: What was the first one again?
1: Cost of entry or, or perceived cost of entry.
0: What do, you, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, look, it's expensive relative to the operating budget of a lot of existing buildings hmm. to do something outside of the capital upgrade cycle that costs more than, say, five cents a square foot. Right. That starts to raise people's eyes. And that's not a lot of money if you think about it, right? In a million square foot office building, which is not most office building, right. that is- 50 grand, yeah. 50 grand, right? So yeah. that's not a huge project. Now, if you can demonstrate savings on the back of that or make a change, you can start to generate the ROI, but, the, but just literally the cost of entry in a lot of situations is more, and this gets back to when buildings are not bonds, it's like, right, but then, you also maybe spend 50 grand and can now all of a sudden do something like fault detection and diagnostics and find the 25% of your terminal units on average that aren't working and aren't providing air, you know, to the people in the building um, (laughs) in certain situations. Right. So it may be worth it, but.
0: All right. So let's just go through the six again. We don't have to unpack all of them. Cost of entry, skilled labor.
1: Yeah. Lack of skilled labor. I mean, I think this one's straightforward, but it's just it's in everyone that works in our value chain and building technology experiences this, but for something that, you know, all my clients want, there's not very many people that can deliver it. And particularly I would say the biggest area where they're lacking, you know, if somebody's looking for where to focus their time or build a skill set that is useful to the market, you know, if you, if you took my sort of three stages of a program strategy And, you know, implementation program management, and then kind of the engineering or building level technical things related to that, it's the middle one where there's not enough people. There are not enough people that can actually develop, manage, and then implement a technology program across all facets. So including operational changes, change management, the technology vendors, building level vendors, that part is vastly under-resourced.
0: Yeah, and I call that the champion role. And my course is not hitting that yet. (laughs) Uh, But that's what that's the bucket that we're focused on. I I totally agree that we need more people that can navigate that implementing the strategy, right? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. And when I like I worked for Gwen Munton at GPG advisors for a couple of years, and that is what they were really good at was developing a program and then just logging through to get it done. And so we did, I had the opportunity to do some amazing, you know, tr- like the program we did with Taubman as a retail RE based out of the Detroit area. It was, you know, over 20 large shopping centers, full, you know, meter deployment, BAS data integration. They developed an entire centralized, you know, energy and operational database operations function, hiring an energy manager out of that it was soup to nuts out of the ground and they funded it, but it needed to be delivered on. And, you know, we've got a crash course in actually doing that. Um, oh, yeah. The next was confusing vendor markets. So this is one that we spent a lot of time on it at, at pushman with the digital buildings practice. And I know like JLL is very sophisticated in this respect too. And I'm sure CBRE is too. I just don't have as much knowledge about it, but, There's a lot of companies doing a lot of things in prop tech and that's growing. And I get sort of tired of like hearing every year about how there's just too many to manage and it's so hard and there's 3,000 companies that we're tracking. Yeah, that's true. The, The way to get through that is to talk to them all and try to develop frameworks and categories for what they do, segment the market, understand how they're the same, how they're different, you know, try to try to put together some. Consolidated thought processes around the relationships that your organization, whether it's big like Cushman or, or, or small like the company that I'm I'm building now, you know what kind of relationship we have with those vendors, and then you know be the intermediary between the clients that know nothing about this or are or, or getting called by all those three thousand companies and what they actually need. Like there's a lot of value in that. I've heard from numerous clients over the last five years that one of the services we bring that's valuable is. Being the, the lens, the filter on that for yeah. them. Interesting. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I often play that that role as well. You need somebody to do it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And what were the other two? Was that? Like, was what, there two more?
1: Yeah, three more. The the last two are kind of related to each other. The, the inadequate infrastructure is the fourth one. And and look, that that obviously varies. I, what I always remind people or try to encourage people who are thinking about, particularly people that manage like a lot of real estate, multiple buildings, multiple cities, you know, big portfolios, corporate or commercial, is you gotta think of things in distribution. Like as a first approximation, think of everything in a bell curve, at least just for a mental model. So if I say inadequate infrastructure, some people, some segments of people are gonna say, well, we've got great infrastructure. It's like, okay, but think of it in terms of a bell curve, right, because if you're a really big company, You know if you're Brookfield or someone that's really big and got a lot of buildings you have different take any given type of technology network or security system or building automation there's some kind of distribution of sophistication you have some buildings that are great you have some buildings that are still using pneumatic controls for everything not that that's bad but it's certainly behind the time Um, and then you've got a lot stuck in the middle right? right and so this is the area where i get the most frustrated about the whole buildings are not bonds thing is it's like if you have systems that are fundamental to keeping that revenue stream coming in for your fixed income assets you need to maintain them and everyone's used to doing that when they think of it like i have the maintenance guy come out once a year for the chiller (laughs) you know they're used to absorbing that technology doesn't work like that and operational technology doesn't work like that it's increasingly needing updates regularly and so Johnson Controls is telling you to update Metasys once a quarter because they're doing quarterly releases now or I don't know that they are but you know they're doing more rapid releases than they used to very few people are doing that they they pretend like that building automation system is like a computer that they bought and they don't ever need to update yeah windows afterthought yeah and they literally don't update windows on that computer in a lot of cases right and so it's like it just doesn't you know OT is not concrete it needs to be treated. It, it doesn't just like live until it dies. Like there's care and feeding that needs to go into it. And so, you know, that is one of the things where buildings are behind. They need to treat their technology more like a modern technology. It's not so much that they don't have it. You know, we did a big survey when I was at Cushman on all the property management buildings. And it was like basically 95% of buildings in North America had a digital building automation system. It was a way higher number than I would get. Oh, wow. It's a big statistical sample, hundreds of buildings that responded in that survey, you know? And so it's like, okay, you know, the buildings that a company like that are managing, they've got VAS. But 25% still had pneumatic controls in some form too, if I remember the numbers correctly. So there's this legacy of updating the older parts of that system. Totally. Um, and then the last two are just around basically ROI. Um, So time to ROI, ambiguity around ROI, Mm -hmm. how do you measure ROI, um, can you measure the ROI in the way that the finance guys are used to, you know, that one you've got to tackle on an individual basis. The things that I learned the most from Doug, who still leads the digital buildings group or digital advisory group at at Cushman, you know, was the kind of order uh, of how to, to think about that and work with the clients on that. So, you know, and where and how you think about metrics to measure success. We struggled mm-hmm. a lot with that in the early days of when I joined Switch. And I think the whole industry's gotten a lot better about that now, but you know, you still have to get to a level of comfort with each individual client about what ROI means.
2: Oh, absolutely. And how to,
1: and how to measure it, right?
0: Yeah, everybody's, you know, balance sheet's different. Everybody's income statement's different. Everybody has different budgets, different ways they slice their budgets. Different room and, and different budgets, right? Uh, yeah. The whole business case is always custom. Yeah. Every every product I've worked on, it's custom. So
1: also there are thoughts and, and perception of non-quantitative metrics, you know, the qualitative things that come with a program, just that you're contributing to like kind of a greater good versus just measuring like how much energy you save at each building. Also portfolio effects. I mean, again, bell curve, right? So yeah. like sometimes I I used to say like I could go into any big commercial building and probably find like eight to 10% energy savings at like Mm -hmm. relatively low, no cost, you know, like OPEX style savings, not like replace the chiller plant. I mean, you can always get savings doing that. And I think generally speaking, that was true. You know, I'm a bit more far removed from specifically doing like energy focused programs, but like you can usually find that, that much money, but you know, you'll get clients sometimes that are like, "Why didn't we get 15% savings at every building?" And it's like, "Well, because again, like we did this at 20 buildings, and some were really good, a few, some we had a bigger savings than that, and really, it's some kind of distribution that like approximates a normal curve." You have to be really careful when you're cherry picking like pilot sites. Oh yeah. You know, it's like, are you expecting to hit this number that is going to be an average? at the two or three pilot sites we're doing out of your 50. Right. um, Then we need to very carefully select them, you know? And so there's just a lot of complexity in that.
0: Yeah, the other piece of business case complexity is around who accepts like what level of fluffiness, right? So we have metrics like productivity, and different businesses accept different levels of scrutiny around those types of numbers, and which makes it really difficult as well. So like energy is usually like a hard number. And then the other ones yeah. are a little bit more, more fluffy. And it's like, that's kind of bespoke as well, like tailoring that argument to each different building owner.
1: That's the big deal with indoor air quality. You know, you know I've read healthy buildings over the summer yeah. I think like a lot of us did, the, you know, mm-hmm. Joseph Allen and John Macumber from Harvard. John Macumber was my professor for two classes and the sponsor of my field study I did with dentistry oh, wow. while I was at HBS. And he, John, I'm sure, was the one that did all those financial, because he's the finance guy. Um, he did a lot of those financial projections around, you know, essentially corporate HR calculations saying... Just sort of demonstrating the JLL 330, 300 concept that like, you know, your, your people and productivity matter way more than your energy budget or yeah. even your real estate costs, which I think we all know intuitively. And I think the math is completely plausible. And for the right audience, that type of spreadsheet makes a lot of sense.
2: Yeah.
1: It is rare, unfortunately, that the incentives accrue to the building level or even the like FM team level. Yeah or productivity. Yeah. And, and so it that is still a very hard case to make it, it, you know, in a lot of situations, you have to get together stakeholders at a much higher level than yeah. we're often, you know, interacting with. Yeah, totally. Yeah.
0: And how I teach it in the course is tangible versus non-tangible. And you have to basically define that with your, with your stakeholder. Well, I, yeah. I love that list. That, that's an awesome list. I, I've asked that question probably 30 times now, and uh, that, that was the most detailed <laughs> answer that I've gotten yet, which is, which is awesome. Hey guys, just another quick note from our sponsor, Nexus Labs, and then we'll get back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Nexus Foundations, our introductory course on the smart buildings industry. If you're new to the industry, this course is for you. If you're an industry vet, but want to understand how technology is changing things, this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together, and they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls and in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexislabs.online. All right, back to the interview. Um, I want to ask you, so one of the most popular episodes on this podcast has been with Google. So it was um, Keith Birkebin and... Um, oh, yeah. Trevor Sodorf and Trevor works for DB engineering. So he's a consultant to Google, but I I wanted to ask you about your experience. So you worked at Cushman Wakefield and supporting Google. So can you kind of explain uh, kind of what you guys did there? And I'll probably have some follow-up questions for you.
1: I mean, I basically fell into being a, an original member of that team. So I worked very closely with Keith and Keith's team and, and Mark who Keith works for. And alongside Trevor, you know, I know Trevor worked with Daryl Smith, who was my client at Cushman, going back to his days at Microsoft, DB really got off the ground at, at scale, working out of the rock at Microsoft okay. and, and optimizing that campus and doing great work for Daryl. And then when Daryl came over to Google, DB came with him and was doing similar work. So I joined the CW account uh, at the beginning of its third month. So a few of the people on the leadership team of that account you know they've been working on sort of the transition and and then it's been there for two months um the db team had worked alongside the people uh, on the kushman team that set up the centralized operations center out there for that portfolio which has been very very successful you know kushman came off the ground there separating hard services and soft services you know out, out of the gate so if a google employee a googler submitted a ticket or any kind of hard services category through the the ticketing system, you know, that routed through a different process than going to the site level FM, which is the way it would work at a lot of, you know, corporate real estate accounts. It would go to the person at the building or the region. Mm -hmm. Instead, it all goes, it's funneled centrally through the ops center. So everything that we did was sort of around that lens of the operations center and, and, you work was coordinated through and and part of the budget of the you know the critical operations team out there okay so it, it's a very interesting model was just super interesting I incredibly you know fortunate um, I loved working with that team so the role I played really was to be again kind of the program manager for what they set up um, okay. and Google has done a lot of amazing work the sort of open source framework for for building tagging that they had developed you know based off brick and haystack and And that whole project was more on the software side, you know, very much Trevor and, and Keith's world. And I'm familiar with what they did, but I'm not really a software engineer per se. So, you know, that kind of. was the
0: crux of the interview with those two was like the ontology and mostly the side supervisory control and that thing.
1: So I, can, I contributed a significant amount into the way that I think they were, you know, thinking about that stuff. But Trevor was really on top of all of that. And so what Trevor and I really worked together to do, and and a lot of our team, you know, we had some project managers that worked on it too, was to get the data out of the building automation system mm-hmm. and do the integration project. Now we came in and they had some massive advantages out of the gate. I mean, Google had done an amazing <laughs> job. Dan and others out there had built a very standardized building automation system with a very high quality implementation. And they have, you know, the, the operations center out at Google largely runs out of that building automation system. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's of a high enough quality that it does a significant amount of the sort of data platforming just through, you know, ALC, BACnet, BMS. Okay. There's some disadvantages to that and things that they're trying to work on. You know, alarming was still a big challenge, things like that, that you, you get some of the big scale BMS challenges, but we, basically selected the data points across all of these, this fairly standardized implementation and, and did the kind of analysis to integrate about 250,000 data points into the data lake that okay. they used to build that ontology. Okay. And so credit to, credit to Google for having standardized all that long before we ever got there, but that was still a very heavy lift. Uh, we had to work with their integration supplier, that box, they had to get back net drivers written and tested. I mean, we had, I mean, that rolled out across, you know, when I left that account in April of 2019 and I last looked at that, we had integrated like 165 buildings of data okay. in yeah. nine months, you know, and it was ongoing work around metering and verifying the meter calculations and things to make, you know, to make sure submetering was all correct. But there was like several thousand submeters that were going into that as well. And so that kind of got the, the plumbing set up for the data lake that then they were able to do interesting stuff on going forward.
0: Got it, cool. I mean, yeah, that whole implementation and and then what interests me around it, so I've only talked to Trevor and Keith about it and now you about it, but what interests me is I'm seeing, I follow a lot of Google's sustainability efforts. And so seeing them sort of pushing the envelope and trying to get to 24 seven carbon free energy, they call it, and then hearing about what's happening, <laughs> you know, actually in the field at the point level, uh, it's interesting watching like, imagining those two ends of the spectrum coming together really for the i haven't heard a lot of corporations you know number one set that goal out right carbon-free energy and number two say okay well obviously we have to figure out the controls and the buildings and the data aspect of this and and it seems like they're really leaders on both of those types of things right now
1: yeah and a lot of those efforts aren't you know, directly connected, but they're all part of the same vision. And and I have to say like as a company, they're interesting because they treat big and small almost with the same importance. Like that Mm -hmm. was a really big integration project we did, but in a way, like to your point, it's all about kind of the micro level. Like how do we set up an ontology that's like atomic from the ground up, Mm -hmm. you know, that we use. Whereas there's people that are working on like carbon offsets for for 24 seven, you know, net zero energy certification. So it, it really is super interesting. And a lot of the people we worked with on the energy side, I did quite a bit related to the utilities budget and energy management and things out there we're also people that had done a lot of you know, wholesale energy procurement and you know, wind power deals in the past, PPAs and things like that that so were all related to offset. So it's, it's a super sophisticated you know, facilities team out there. And the Cushman team is amazing too, really, really good. I've worked with a lot of corporate real estate groups before across a lot of the different companies. That's a really strong team. Awesome.
0: Cool. I'll I'll be attempting to pull more of those types of people that are leading into the podcast. So we'll see. Um, You want to talk about a little smart building strategy next? Um, Sure. So can you just kind of give your definition of strategy? So earlier you talked about strategy, basically implementing the strategy and then engineering design basically program management yeah so i'm i'm assuming strategy in your mind comes before the program management you have to create the strategy to then implement it so how do you think about yeah. that?
1: i mean I, I think strategy is all about taking a step back and figuring out what you want to do and why you want to do it right mm-hmm. i mean it it doesn't need to be any more complicated now, i think strategy in general is a word that you can stuff a lot into mm-hmm. um you know i think there's like it's a suitcase word yeah, you can stuff a lot of different things into it. It's overused, you yeah, know, having gone through the MBA and management consulting worlds, like it's it's almost meaningless how much that word is used. But like the concept is that it means you're zooming out and not thinking about the detail, you're thinking about the planning and what you want to do. So like there's a lot of useful frameworks to think about what is the general strategic vision for the company or the real estate group? What are you trying to accomplish? Why do you want to accomplish it? How do we then define that in some outcomes that are business metrics like we talked about qualitative or quantitative how do we move that into a set of technology capabilities that that will will help us achieve those outcomes or goals and that's kind of an iterative process because sometimes you can get new business outcomes by having new technology capabilities but in general they they kind of go together and then you just sort of move on from there and it's more of like a design process let's figure out what the tech needs to do which use cases we want to select You know, how do we want to improve the user experience for whoever the user groups are? Always important to note in real estate that we sometimes just assume who the user group is, but it's usually either people in the building that use the building as occupants or it's the people that manage the building or analyze it or in kind of the back-end process of it. Both are very important user bases. It's important to design for them. Mm -hmm. But that kind of process of figuring that out in advance is is really what a strategy phase is all about. Yeah. Um, so, you know, really defining that out and then taking that into a plan or a roadmap that starts to define what the program is gonna be.
0: Totally. And, and what do you think some of the challenges are for real estate groups with, with basically figuring stuff out in advance?
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there's a whole raft of challenges because usually people come in with a preconceived notion that's based off of a vendor that sold something to them. So one of the biggest challenges I encounter is like, hey, do you know so-and-so? And And it's like, yes. (laughs) And they're like, what do you think? Well, here's what I think, but like I have to give you a nuanced answer because I really need to know what you want to do to answer that. You know, so I think this about them. I think that they do these things within this space that achieve these types of things. And they're probably good on this and maybe not good on this. But it's like, People but how just is like, that oh, relevant
0: I, to what you're trying to do? Yeah,
1: yeah. People, or they're just like, "Oh, we just thought we'd buy it because it was good." Like this happened to us a lot. Uh, this happened to me a lot in every consulting type role I've had. Yeah. So putting things in in that context and zooming out, seeing the forest before you go into the trees is really important. And so that's kind of the primary challenge is usually getting people to recognize that they need to take a step back and and think it through you know, having the right stakeholders at the table is always a challenge because you always come into an organization usually through facilities or real estate or if it's a commercial real estate group through an asset manager or an operations person or occasionally it's through like a central shared services function um, that kind of manages this. Occasionally, maybe it's through the IT group. It's almost never who you need to actually get a strategy in place. Right. I mean, basically almost never is it just a one-off building project. If it is, you've probably gone to an engineering consultant, you know, a pure play engineering consultant to do it. And in a lot of cases for a long time, that's meant that you got a kind of suboptimal outcome for the broader portfolio. So like we need to do the mobile badge access control in this building. And if that kind of comes through the, the property management team at that building, you're usually not thinking about how that can be applied yeah. to the portfolio right? Right. Um, Which is a a myth. Yeah. So elevating to the right level, getting the right stakeholders in the room, always a challenge. It takes time. Part of the reason that this is slow, because these are enterprise consulting processes, basically. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. How do you help people with that? Because I know strategy is one of the things that you're focusing on with system two.
1: Yeah. You know, where required. I mean, there's a lot of other good strategists out there, people that focus on that. You know, So it, that doesn't necessarily need to, to come from us, but in a lot of cases, it, it, it does need to, because you were brought in to look at a building or you were brought in to look at a specific yeah. type of system, and then it becomes clear that it, it's worth zooming out. So you know, it's about getting people to recognize the value in doing that and then taking them through a, you know, a structured thinking process. It's, you know, it's modern strategy consulting is starting to look a lot more and more like a, a design process. I mean, those things are kind of converging in a way.
2: Mm-hmm. And I don't
1: mean like building design, I mean like the, the kind of ideation and thinking process. Yep. Um, so it depends on what the client wants to do. If they really want to think through it holistically, it's going to start to look a lot more like a design. Pro- well, let's, let's envision what the future could look like and then think about how we sort of back into that from yep. where you are now. Yep. Um, Sometimes it is more just about like building the financial model, you know, and so the kind of strategy phase could really be part of the program development phase where it's like, look, we know we want to do these sets of things and likely at this target set of buildings, what is it going to take to do that? And it's more about kind of technology planning, you know, a lot more of what like a, a, a traditional technology consultant would. would yeah. do. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think sometimes the ideation or the design phase might get skipped. But then you have to at least come back to the user engagement at some point, right? How is this fitting into yeah. the user's workflow? How are we going to get them to use it? <laughs> like, like things like that still have to happen at some point, right? And yeah, so I like to think of that piece as like, can can that be part of the strategy as well? Um, and it doesn't always happen up upfront as well. And at least that's how we teach For it, of sure. course.
1: Yeah. Most of what PropTech tech is trying to do is fundamentally digital transformation of some variety. I mean, there's very few pure play, this just replaces something we already do, and it's fundamentally better. There's some of those, and those are companies that are actually very successful. They can build scaled channel businesses really quickly. Right. Um, but like that is the minority of prop tech businesses. Uh, and a lot of it is convincing people to do new things, which is inherently a, a transformation type of process. And so taking a step back, starting with the like what we want to do and why and how we want to measure that, you know, it it is an important step to take. You know, again, usually almost never one building, one technology that's driving an initiative. It's usually a category of things that they're looking at, a set of value drivers, like there's, you know, an ESG focus. What do we do to improve sustainability and highlight, you know, transparent reporting or cost reduction or, you know, and then at that point, it starts to look like management consulting. I mean, you're looking at enterprise value drivers and you need to let that flow through. Now, you still have a lens on the technology market. We know the goal, a lot of times the goal is to be a more innovative organization. I mean, we have clients that just, it's the innovation group or committee that are, you know, driving this. Hmm. But then you still need to go backwards from that and say, well, then what is it that's going to prove the innovation, right? innovation or why? Yeah, the reason. Totally.
0: I think something I also I I definitely struggle with the strategy and like there's the inserting tech into a workflow, like that's an easy way to create a use case for technology. But then the digital transformation piece is like, well, this workflow is messed up and we need to do this entire department differently. And I feel like that's it's something I I've struggled with in the course because smart buildings often require transformation of how we're doing things in the business today and I've always tried for at least the course which is an introductory course tried to draw a a boundary around like we're not talking about full-scale digital transformation in this course but um, the other piece I've struggled with is the the aspect that you can implement one use case right and that might require a certain technology stack right but you could also use that same technology stack for 25 other use cases. And so now you're kind of blowing up this strategy or this program. So how do you think about like these different layers of technology when it comes to strategy?
1: I think that that is one of the keys to thinking about a strategy, right? It's like ultimately like the solutions you select need to be part of an architecture that supports future goals. And so, you know, there's definitely things you want to measure in the short term you know, we talked about ROI ambiguity as a challenge, but the best companies that are doing this are ones that are thinking about, you know, they understand the platform concept. They're laying foundation and then building layers upon that that enable future capabilities down the line. So take something like, you know, networking and building. Foundational backbone of anything connected is that it can communicate on a network, All the things you hear about with monitoring and sensor technologies and IoT solutions and data platforms and even just metering and and a lot of the the experience-related things. Um, So modern access control systems that utilize mobile, visitor management solutions, uh, digital signage, those things all benefit from having you know, in a commercial building setting, a base building network or in a corporate setting, having like a dedicated VLAN for operational technology or however they have set up their yeah. their architecture, right? And so like that is a bottom layer type thing. And so, you know, there's a lot of frameworks, where You can think of this, but you have to think of it in stages, right? That, that sort of begin with foundational layers sort of at the building, at the edge, and then ultimately end up with people process. Users and you know change transformation at the top stage, mm-hmm. and in between are all the things we normally think about as technology, all the, the bits and pieces, the devices, the protocols, how they communicate from edge to cloud, cloud infrastructure itself, you know the software layers that sit on top of that that do analytics or data processing, the integrations between platforms, and at that point that share and exchange data. I mean, I'm doing a project right now where I'm working with a corporate client that, you know, one of the things we've done is kind of specify a lot of the integrations to enable this service design architecture that's been developed for their workplace of the future. And it's a lot of integration, many lines in a spreadsheet to enable that. And so you've got to prioritize them and build them in a roadmap, you know, and that's all about those layers. It took a lot of building up what all the foundational components were before we got to that part where we could say, well, these are the things that need to communicate with each other totally, and that kind of systems thinking, you know, around how the stuff actually interoperates, it's a tricky thing to do. I mean, it's something that I've had to learn to, you know, to build the muscles around doing that for sure.
0: For sure. And I think what you just talked about getting pulled into a project, I think there are so many of us that get pulled into projects, and if you look back upstream, that project doesn't have a strategy behind it. Uh, I I just feel like it's more and more, it's needed more and more. They're like that zoom out conversation and you don't want to delay things because everyone wants to do a project, right? But projects go better if they have some, some sort of backing behind them. So I've seen you do a bunch of different posts on LinkedIn around reset. And so I just wanted to talk about kind of like where, IAQ is in March, 2021, because I, I haven't had any of my recent projects working on IAQ. And I know it's just moving so rapidly due to COVID, obviously. And yeah. I just wanted to get like, basically pretend I don't know anything about what's going on. Tell me about reset. Tell me about what's going on with indoor air quality in our industry right now.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, within the world of indoor air quality as a topic, you know, there's a big community community that's been involved with that, but it's been, I think, somewhat boutique until the last couple of years. And a few things, a couple of things have changed, okay? One is the indoor air quality monitor technology, the IoT solution side has evolved to the point where you can buy high quality commercial grade monitors at a reasonable cost, you know, at kind of real estate construction cost scale. So it's just viable and it wasn't before.
2: So it before the best what, you
1: could- What do. sort of sensors? Yeah, so IAQ monitors. So this is where Reset comes into play. So within that IAQ world, there are some standards that are looking to sort of certify either space or technology products. Reset has basically developed the standard for a bunch of pieces of that monitoring value chain. So they've developed an accredited professional program. I became accredited along with several people from the sustainability and energy team uh, on the commercial side at Cushman. In November, we did the the class together. And so that's kind of like being a lead AP. I'll talk in a minute about what those people would do. But they've also developed a certification of course commensurate with that for building. So there's a commercial interior and a corn shell standard to get the plaque on the wall.
2: Okay. But they've
1: also developed a standard for the technology. So they've developed a monitor standard which is for the actual sensors. Mm Then they call it a group of sensors a monitor, there's basically five variables, like the IAQ5 that you measure for in any sort of leading indoor air quality sensor package. Temperature, relative humidity, CO2, uh, TVOC, small organic compounds, and, and particulate matter, PM2.5 as yep. uh, this, the this standard. Some of them will throw in a CO monitor, like a CO alarm. Some of the outdoor sensors include things like uh, in- inorganic gases, like NOx, nitrogen oxides, um, that are outdoor pollution issues, but there's the, the IAQ 5 for the indoor monitors, kind of the, the standard. Okay. That sensor technology's come a long way, but there was no one that said, like, this is a commercial grade monitor. There were these uh, consumer grade monitors that have some challenges, technically, on the, you know, just the quality of the sensors. There were lab grade monitors, which were, you know, $10,000 lab type equipment there wasn't a consumer grade monitor. They developed a standard for that. And a number of companies have developed products and become certified for that. At the same time, they've developed a standard for the data platform side, which is essentially a data quality standard. So if you have a data platform like switches, you know, that is an operational data platform or it could be anything, right? Some are big, some are small, some are part of vertically integrated IoT solutions, but it has to just meet these standards. It has to provide five minute interval data, at this frequency, you have to connect it to the reset API. It has to aggregate five minute readings into 30 minute averages according to the, the standard. And then they get certified after a period of time to basically be plugged into the reset cloud. And then all of the kind of analytics part of reset is automated at that point. So what an AP does is they will look at the project, say, this is what you need to do. these is where you need to put the monitors to get the standard certification process started go help do that, get them deployed online. Okay. The data platform is already connected to Reset. Um, and the data starts flowing. And then basically Reset is a 100% performance-based standard. There's no checklist or, or certification about how to achieve it. It's just standard these thresholds, you know, within these parameters basically hmm. for this period of time and you get certified. Wow. And it's those five yeah. variables basically. Um, so it, it's really super powerful because it it opens up flexibility for how people can actually comply with the standard.
2: Course, There's other yeah. good
1: IAQ standards out there. You know, I'm doing some interesting work with Aerated, the side of the UK, very interesting uh, approach, also has some performance-based elements they've developed in design and operations more checklist style. One of the downsides of Reset is if you don't think you're going to get it, you don't have a lot of incentive to go try because, mm-hmm. you, you know, you put out the monitors and if you know you're not going to hit the CO2 numbers or you think you're, you're not, then it's like, well, I should do the project to remediate to get to where I'm going to achieve reset. And yeah. a lot of times people don't know how to do that, right? They need a checklist to do that or an engineer to come in and do the evaluation. So aerated is very interesting uh, there. UL has got a program that I'm learning about right now that's yeah. uh, certifying space as well. So th- there's, there's other things going on out there, but um, definitely indoor environmental quality is becoming a much Bigger percentage of mind share of the kind of sustainability certification world. And that started with well, you know, five, six years ago as it started to come into prominence. LEED has really, I think, focused emphasized IEQ a lot more in the later versions of the standard mm-hmm. um, as well. So there's interesting stuff going on there.
0: You, you mentioned to me earlier about how IAQ monitors, now that I know what that term means, actually, uh, yeah. should be thought of more like meters than automation. What do you, what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah. So, if you were going to do, say, air quality monitoring historically, and there's still a lot of people I've talked to even recently that kind of have this perspective, they're like, why wouldn't I just integrate the sensors into my building automation system?
2: Mm-hmm. Or like,
1: I've got a Jake. I've got Tridian, like, I can just pull in the data there. And it's, Yes, technically you can do that. um, There are some challenges around that. CO2 sensors and especially the um, VOC sensors drift quite a bit. And so the commercial grade monitors, when Reset does that certification for them, they actually compare them to those grade A, you know, tens of thousands of dollar lab monitors as they reference. So so they are held to that, you know, they're measured with very accurate lab style equipment. And they have to hit a certain data accuracy for a certain period of time. It's a, it's a rigorous process to get certified. And the sensor that your BAS vendor is going to install has not gone through that process. Let's just say that. It also is missing some important, most likely it is missing some important software capabilities, whether that's firmware at the box level or you know cloud-based monitored managed that is doing some of that recalibration for those variables that tend to drift or bias over time. So there's some disadvantages to doing it in your BAS. You know, I'm still always happy to see a building that has CO2 based demand control at the zone level, because you know that they're gonna have good air quality in that conference room, better air quality if it's working right, um, you know, than if it's just temperature based alone. But the sort of right way, the better way to maybe achieve that use case Increasingly would be to go with a company like aware that has built a BACnet version of their monitor and pull the data into the BAS directly. Using a higher quality monitor for that. Plus then you get the other variables. You get the particular matter, you get the VOPs, all the other things that matter. Um, I see. so the reason it's more like a meter is because there's sort of two things that you want to pay attention to, to get a good sense of IAQ. And the best analog for this is energy. So if you want to get a good sense for what's going on with energy, you want meters on the, on the main building feeds and maybe some submeters if they're high value to disaggregate category loads. And then you want to pay attention to the things that are using energy. So I, still, a lot of times we'll go in with clients that are wanting to over-submeter. And I'll say, don't spend the money on all the extra submeters. You get nothing from a marginal submeter. You might as well pay attention to the thing that's using 50 to 60% of your energy in the average building. And that's the age factor. So you're much better off putting in place HVAC fault detection and diagnostics or some sort of analytic capability that is, I mean, it's like your blood pressure. Like I don't need to take my blood pressure every five minutes. If my blood pressure is high, I know what I need to do. I need to eat better and exercise and, you know, eat less salt and all those, you know, similar kind of situation, right? So, So IAQ is the exact same thing. You want to monitor the IAQ as an output of the processes that affect it, the people breathing in the space, the materials off gassing the hvac working or not working like it's supposed to mm-hmm. um those are processes that produce air quality and so you want to monitor that like with a meter you know just like with electricity like i still do want that main meter on the building and the useful sub meters i want to know what's going on i want both they're independent checks on each other and so you know it really isn't so much about where the data is integrated through. I think the technical people kind of conflate that. It's about the sort of purpose of the data. One is about seeing the output of the process of the building, what's actually going on in the room or in the building. The other is about what's going on with the system that, that is sort of supposed to be managing that.
0: hmm yeah, and the, the, the BMS, as everyone's heard on this podcast, me complain about that it's not very good a steward of the data that once it gets in there to be able to measure yeah. the output and, and see analytics on it and things like that. So, well, we're a little bit over our time today. I have a sense that we could go uh, on forever, Aaron. So thanks so much. What are you excited about in uh, 2021 that you're looking forward to?
1: Well, I mean, I'm excited about starting you know th- this firm and really getting it off the ground. And seeing the growth there and that's starting to happen so it's exciting i'm also just really excited for a lot of my clients um, that i'm seeing have success and drive these types of initiatives um, and a lot of the at the same time a lot of companies on the supply side you know the the prop tech vendors that are seeing acceleration um, in what had been a you know kind of a slow market yeah and you know a lot it, while real estate has taken a big hit here, commercial real estate, you know, if anything, we've just seen that sort of a a major, major shift in focus towards what the buildings actually do and how they work and whether or not they're providing the right experience, the right level of health.
2: Um, And
1: to some extent it's abstracted, you know, building technology and prop tech away from just energy or very specific individual vertical value drivers to this sort of broader Strategic perspective, like I need the building to be a sustainable, healthy, valuable asset that that my customers, our tenants, want to use. Or in the case of a corporate real estate group, that's going to bring our employees back and provide them the experience that they they deserve. Um, you know, as the use cases for the the built environment kind of change and shift here. So it's there's been a huge acceleration in in that. It's, technology is part of that, but it's also just seeing real estate get better.
0: Totally. Love it. All right. Thanks so much for for coming on the show and and dropping your your wisdom. Uh, Good. Best of luck with System 2
1: this year. Thanks, James. Happy to do it.
0: All right, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry. Please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.